Oh, here we go. Hey, everybody. You have to check out this amazing new true crime podcast. It's called 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. It's about a murder that took place in Washington, D.C. A family and their housekeeper were held hostage for 19 hours before being killed when the murderer set their mansion on fire. You'll be shocked by what they went through during those 19 hours, and you won't believe how they found the guy. I won't ruin the ending, but all I will say is pizza crust. I'm telling you, it's awesome. Podcast One teamed up with award-winning journalists from news giant WTOP to put this story together, and the podcast is great. Download 22 Hours and American Nightmare, now on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. New episodes every Monday. And now this. Greetings, friends. Welcome to the Two Shot, ow, ow. our double feature movie podcast, where we double feature double features. Doubly so. Double, double, good, good. Double, double, toil and fun. Double, double, cheese, cheese, burger, burger, please. We're the uh, good guys. We got to be double. <laughs> to uh, dig up some archaic uh, commercial jingles from the 1980s. There. I can't believe uh, I doubled the whole thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the embarrassed one. Uh, I have work on the internet. You can read words that I write. You can hear my voice incessantly out of this very podcast channel. And with me, as always, is my scintillating co-host. I'm William. Mr. William Bibiani. Yeah, William Bibiani. Uh, I'm a film critic. I work for uh, The Rap and Bloody Disgusting and IGN and Critically Acclaimed. Uh, and everybody calls me Bibs. And this week on The Two Shot... Uh, it's a very special episode. Usually these episodes are decided by a poll in which uh, our mm-hmm. listeners get to pick the quote-unquote bad or at least notorious movie that we review every week. We pick a allegedly bad one and pick a good one to go along with it. Sometimes we defend the bad one. Uh, however, this time was special because this time uh, the quote-unquote bad film, the notorious film, was selected by a sweepstakes winner at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Critic mm-hmm. acclaim. Uh, our Patreon winner was none other than James Appleby. Hi, James. Who very quickly. Thanks, thanks for playing. Yeah, who very quickly came back with an interesting suggestion a relatively recent film mm-hmm. that both you and I missed in theaters, and a lot of people did. A lot, a lot of people did, and it was. N- not necessarily panned, but it was not at all praised, well, from what I recall. We're in this interesting period, and we have been since at least since Act of Valor came out, where the early parts of the year, the Januaries and the Februaries, in America at least, there's usually one prominent jingoistic, not mm. necessarily bad, but very rah-rah America, kind of, kind of, support the troops. Kind of propaganda film almost. Uh, yeah. Often propagandistic films that do really, really well. Sometimes these films are popular and or acclaimed films like Lone Survivor. American Sniper was hugely popular. Huge hit. Nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times, not so much. And the movie that we're reviewing today is an interesting novelty. Uh, it's certainly not a lot of films like it. It's from a, a Academy Award winning director. Two-time Academy Award winning director. And... Uh, yeah, it's not very good. It's 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 a it's a dull clot of a movie. Isn't it, it is, but it's an interesting experiment. And let's talk about the fifteen seventeen to Paris. 
Now, the 1517 to Paris is based on a true story. There was a uh, train in Europe, and on that train, someone had brought in uh, weapons of destruction, and they had planned to commit a horrible act of, to the best of my knowledge, terrorism. And three American tourists, two of them uh, soldiers, Mm -hmm. one of them uh, their childhood friend, were on the train and very bravely stopped the attacker before too much damage could be done. Someone was shot. People were injured. Mm -hmm. But considering the amount of firepower that the assailant brought with them, it could have been a lot worse. So these guys... Uh, uh, whoa, what are their names? Hang on, let's give them, let's give them all the credit in the world. Let's give them all the credit in the uh, world. Anthony here. Sadler, Alex Scarlatos, and Spencer Stone were their names. Yeah, so these guys were international heroes, uh, celebrated in France, celebrated in Europe, celebrated in America. Uh, they got a parade back home. Yep, and and with good cause, they did a great thing. Uh, yeah. And their biggest like prize they not, you know sometimes you get like a key to a city mm-hmm. their prize was they got to star in a movie about the incident directed by Clint Eastwood <laughs> called the 1517 <laughs> to Paris they, they're playing themselves yeah which is uh, interesting it's an interesting thought um, well uh, it, it was something that was broached uh, in in my boss's film Inglorious Bastards the um the Daniel Bruhl character, if you remember him. Oh, yeah. Who's like a, a war hero who starred in a film about himself in this German Nazi propaganda film in that movie. What was it, what was it, what was it called again? The something of Pride of a Nation? Is that what it was something called? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the movie within the movie. So, something like that. The, okay. The one that all, all the bad guys were watching when they burned the theater down. That, yeah. That was the film. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah, this is... Uh, these guys were... I'm not sure who approached them, if it was their idea. Some film producer said, you guys have an interesting idea. I don't know how this came together, that mm. they wanted to tell this story of these guys who uh, wailed on a guy on a train and took him out and saved some lives. Uh, not to belittle their, their achievement, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure well, who, who... The original plan was uh, actually to cast other actors. Yeah, uh, well, then, I was about fact, to say, I don't know who thought to cast these guys. Yeah, the original, they had actually cast uh, Kyle Gullner, who had been on Veronica Mars in Smallville. Okay. Uh, Jeremy Harris, uh, who is currently on uh, the show Legion, okay. which is very popular. And Kyle, Kyle Gullner, wasn't he in that horrible Nightmare on Elm Street remake He as was. Well? It wasn't his fault, though. He was yeah. fine in it. Uh, mm. And finally, Alexander Ludwig, uh, who is in films like The Seeker, The Dark is Rising, and The Hunger Games, and is currently on the show Vikings. So, like, kind of blandly good-looking young actors. I mean, I, they might be very interesting yeah, young yeah. actors, but, uh, like, have... they, they fit the roles. Yeah. These are young guys. Uh, and then at some point, they decided to cast the real deal. And why, why uh, let, not? Yeah. <laughs> let those guys tell their own story. And honestly, you know what? If they are comfortable in front of a camera, if they're able to bring their inner lives uh, mm. to the screen, that's a great idea. Let's mm. let them do it. Problem is, they're not. They're not. They're not. They're not actors. They're not actors. Sometimes they're, they're that, not, sometimes and they're that leads to naturalness. Sometimes that leads to people being very genuine well, on screen. But in this case, they seem really awkward. Well, they seem really awkward because they're cast opposite real actors. Like Judy Greer's in the movie. Yeah. Judy Greer's a real actor, and it's a scripted uh, scene. It's not like natural actors sort of behave, like improvising and behaving in a natural fashion or kind of asked to improvise through a scene. They're actually performing in a scripted film. Yeah. And you need an actor for that. <laughs> And not only are these guys not actors, but it's explained in the movie that they've always wanted to be jarheads. Like, that's been their 
childhood dream. We see them as kids and they're excited to play war. Yeah. And they talk about how playing war is the greatest thing an American could possibly do. Mm. And I'm like, you're eight. What do you, and, you and, know? And what? there's a, a line from Judy Greer who plays one of their moms saying like, ever since you were a kid, whenever you saw war on TV, you wanted to jump in the TV and help out. It's like, so this is a very pro-war film. Well, it is. And it's very pro. We're in this position. And I've talked about this before. When we've talked about recent films that are made about soldiers and a lot of films that are made about our current people in the armed forces are very supportive of the people in the armed forces mm. and and with understandably so. Uh, we have been in a state of constant war. And I mean politically. Yeah. Like just we're across the world shooting at people constantly for decades now. Mm-hmm. Like going on 20 years minimum. And... As a result, whether or not you support the war, you probably know people who've been to war. Yeah. You probably are related to people who've been to war. You understand the humanity of the soldier, that it's not an academic concept. Mm. So I appreciate films like this. And, and again, some of them are quite good. Lone Survivor is very good. Oh, Lone Survivor is okay. Lone Survivor is a good movie. Yeah. I'll, I'll stand by Lone Survivor. P- but Peter like, Berg has a niche, that's for sure. That is for sure. However, the desire to see soldiers treated... Fairly, mm. responsibly, heroically, when appropriate, on camera, is totally understandable and very respectable. And I think that's fine. The problem is, when that crosses the line to jingoistic pro-war propaganda. Yeah. Now, this movie never quite gets there because there's not a lot of time spent at the front. However, what we do have mm. is this weird, mystical... Air well, of fate. I, I was well, not only mystical air of fate, but the way the characters view the military is is almost like a deity. Like getting involved with the military is it's like being sanctified. Hmm. It's it's seen as this sort of holy quest, and the the way they treat the military is these sort of like godlike angels that's starting to tip into propaganda because it starts to they're starting to sell the military on younger people as this grand noble life end this rather weird... than something you can do <laughs> during the day there's this weird scene in which one of the uh, one of the young men I forget which mm. wh- whose name it was so the um, one where he's in the jamba juice yes. or whatever yeah there's a bit where this kid who's been wanting to be in the military for forever and He's playing himself. He's still got the military physique, but he's supposed to not have it. So they keep talking about how he's really out of shape. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He looks fine. I don't know <laughs> he looks really healthy to me. Like, I don't understand your issue. But so he, I mean, for some reason, it didn't occur to him to join the armed Just forces. Just to enlist. Yeah. I love that he's looking out the window at his Jamba Juice at some like recruitment tent. And he's just says something to the effect of, hey, that, that armed forces recruitment tent. What's all that about? Mm. And I just wanted to walk into the screen and say... It's an armed forces recruitment tent. <laughs> you obviously want to go because we've established early on that you want to be a soldier. And frankly, it's weird that you went to Jamba Juice first. So he's at the- I always wanted to join the military, but I guess I'll go to Jamba Juice. It's the safe bet. Oh, wait. I guess, well. It's the responsible <laughs> you know what? financial decision. One of those paths has a lot of acai bowls in it. The military is not it. So, you know. I suppose that's true. Yeah. For a second, I thought you said Cybolds, and I'm like, how many Cybolds are in the Jamba <laughs> How many of your relatives work for Jamba Just call me a Cybold Cybold. Um, I love the scene, because he's in this Jamba Juice, uh-huh. and uh, um, I think it's a Marine. Is it a Marine who walks in? He said, it's he, a Marine, yeah. yeah. A Marine walks in, and he orders you know, a smoothie, mm. and 
the guy just says some like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna act out the scene mm-hmm. more or less the way it plays out I'd like a, a strawberry banana smoothie please okay sure so armed forces yeah you what 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 branch you in Marines is that what you'd go to if you win again? No, I'd go to this way cooler thing in the Air Force. It's so much better than what I do. Oh, okay. I guess I'll make that my passion and do that for all my life then. Cool. Here's here, your here. here's a free Jamba Juice. Oh, that's that's great. Thanks for your service. Well, I'm on the reserve, but I'll take the free Jamba Juice. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so robotic. The way it plays out. Even Judy Greer and Jenna Fisher, who played moms of two of the kids. Their scenes are embarrassing. The early scene when they are... Their kids are in elementary school together. Mm-hmm. And they, they're they brought into like a parent-teacher conference. And and the teacher tells them that the kids aren't well. Yeah, the kids, ha- the kids have attention problems. And uh, admittedly, the teacher is way too aggressive in suggesting she, attention deficit disorder drugs. She, she's really condescending, yes. Yeah. But it shouldn't be ignored that maybe these kids need to have something addressed. Yeah. And it's never addressed. Yeah. It's just like, listen, they love guns and war, and that means they're fine. Mm-hmm. And my favorite bit is where, like, the teacher says, like, well, you know, statistics say, and Judy Greer, as she's storming out, my God is bigger than your statistics. <laughs> And then they put the kids in a Christian school where they are apparently even more miserable. Yeah. Which is an interesting take for this kind of... The principal, <laughs> played by Tom Lennon. Weird choice, weird, right? ch- weird. I mean, I love Tom Lennon. Of course he, I do. he can show up anywhere. He was even good in that terrible Puppet Master film. And but... he, bring, he brings like a little bit more personality to this than almost any other actor. Even yeah. good ones like Jenna Fisher and Judy Greer. Well, you can again, tell he's like annoyed. They're asked to play these really two-dimensional characters, and they're asked to sort of sell this really kind of almost propaganda-like message. Like, don't don't listen to those teachers. Listen to listen to just your heart. And if your heart says war, go to war. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what if the kid is good, like likes playing war because he's a violent kid and he needs to be less violent. That's not necessarily the case. I mean, a lot of people hmm. do play at violent games and such yeah, and, it's, it's and true, don't turn out violent. I mean, that is that is something that is worth pointing I, out. I, I wish they had addressed the teacher's concerns a little bit it rather would than be just nice. ignore them. Because would the, be nice. the message of the film then is ignore the teacher's concerns. Well, they, they, what, the message of the film is that God has a very special plan for you and mm-hmm. uh, guys are just like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like... Supposed to do this, mm. and then he does. Well, and, and okay, and God has a plan for them to become soldiers, and they go through a, a lot of trials to get to become soldiers. Mm-hmm. They, they, we get to one see of them their... isn't even any good at it, but he he learns yeah. he learns like Slumdog Millionaire. You know, like in the framework of Slumdog Millionaire is he doesn't have a formal education. However, every question he gets asked in that faded episode mm-hmm. of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Is something that he happened to learn through, through personal through experience. Yeah, yeah. So we see how he learned those interesting, odd factoid tidbits and how that actually was relevant to him mm. growing up. And uh, this is that that same structure, except it's not interesting. <laughs> it's just basically like at some he learns like just enough triage. Mm. To, to stop someone right, from dying right. for a few minutes before they can get him to the hospital. It's like, how did you learn that? Well, I I took a class. Yeah. That's not well, really. That's, that's not really fate. Uh, okay, I'm. I'm glad somebody's life was saved. Agreed. But, but you know, it doesn't that's really not read. A, like, that's not an interesting story to put in a film. It doesn't read like the kind of magic coincidence yeah. that could never possibly have well, happened. And, and 
at the end of the day, what they did, they stopped a guy with a gun, yeah. right? That's which takes some bravery. I, oh, I could, absolutely! I, I couldn't do that. I'm not physically strong I have enough. Nothing even, but, but respect. Near as I can tell, but, I know nothing negative about these people. Near uh, as I can tell, they're they're heroes. Yeah, yeah. But when they actually film it. It's just three guys wailing on a guy on a train. It's, and like it's the over least, in like two minutes. And it's like the least impressive thing. It's like a fight scene. Well, I mean, it's impressive because we're it's actually in because, danger. But yeah. like, but at the same time, cinematically, well, the, the, the actual it's act, brief. The actual act was impressive. But when we see it in the film, it's not. <laughs> so what happens is you have this entire movie and it is building up mm. to a big climax that lasts about two minutes yeah and it's a short movie it's like an hour and a half like mm. it's 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 pretty brisk and it's padded like crazy as and it's well. padded like crazy because there's not enough material mm. there the idea that they were fated to do this doesn't make their lives before that any more interesting oh i'm gonna go to, into the military and try to do some stuff mm. uh, it didn't go great anyway 50 minutes later we decide to go on a trip to europe then we like backpack around Europe for a bit, and then we have to beat up a dude on a train. Mm. That's kind of the whole movie. And and Clint Eastwood is exactly the wrong director to handle that because yes, there is a, an energetic young director who could add a little bit of flash to that, perhaps mm. maybe little character moments, maybe little like visual flair. Clint Eastwood, who's in his like what 120s at this point, <laughs> uh, he's an old man. He's an old man. Uh, he even when he was younger, though he was always kind of a languid director. He was always there were a few. really relaxed. His films, kind High of... Plains Drifter, is really intense. There's a few films. Maybe we maybe covered so. Unforgiven here. There's a lot of there's a lot to that one. There, there's a lot of flair, but even then, the narrative doesn't have the same kind of energetic thrust as a more action-packed picture might. Well, I think compare Unforgiven to something like I haven't seen the whole thing, thing, but Tombstone. Oh, Tombstone's way more pulpy. Yeah. Like, here's the thing with Clint Eastwood, and I think well, there's a couple things with Clint Eastwood. One. Mm. He's actually kind of unusual as an actor who turned into a director because, by all accounts, he's actually very efficient and he's not super concerned with the performances. Mm. He casts people who he can trust and then he does like one or two takes and then he moves on. He doesn't like try to get it perfect. Mm. He just does the film, which is makes sense. He comes from like the 50s, 60s mm. TV. Workman like. Yeah, spaghetti attitude towards yeah, filmmaking. He, he understands how that he works with Don Siegel and he understands that, you know, the grind. Of cinema, and what he does is he doesn't let all of that perfectionism get in the way of the core of the stories that he's trying to tell. Mm. Sometimes he ends up telling really great stories. Sometimes he tells really forgettable stories. Sometimes he tells crappy stories, and I think that's well, that's I, fair. But well, he, even, he, the even thing if is the story that, is interesting, though, he tends to uh, sap a lot of energy from it, yeah, especially but, in his more recent films. Yeah, he's gotten very. I don't want to say laid back, almost stayed mm. in his approach to storytelling. He's really just, he's an old man looking at the world, has his observations about it, and then he moves the fuck on. Yeah. I feel like you're right. I feel like a younger director who was more in the headspace of these people, because who are these guys? Let's, let's put aside their, their unprofessional performances, mm. and that's not even a slight. They're not professional actors. Mm. I'm not even judging them. They they would agree with us, I'm sure. Yeah, like you, you might mm. notice that they're not like starring in other films. <laughs> uh, that's, not, that's not their dream. They want to be in military guys. I, good for them. Uh, we, we need people to do that. But uh, what we have here is a story of young men who are a bit lost. You know, they're not really thriving in the educational system. Mm. The only thing that interests them is, well, two of them anyway, is the military, is uh, war, is guns. Mm. 
uh, and they find a, a healthy outlet for that. They, they join the armed forces and they want to join for the right reasons. They want to do the right thing. They want to help. Mm-hmm. And ironically, their, their Waterloo, their Guns of Navarone, their big mission, mm-hmm. ended up being where they least expected it. The important thing was a couple of people who knew how to protect people, who knew how to defuse a situation, who knew how to stop violence from happening, were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. That is the story for me. It's the idea of here, here are three guys who had a need to find a healthy outlet for aggression mm-hmm. and and frustration and whatever. Like, well, and, yeah, and, and you know, they don't have fathers in their lives or anything like that. There's a certain sense of detachment that they yeah, have. And, and, and like they find th- th- it actually ends up working out in a mostly positive yeah, way. And uh, that's the story. And it feels like that's not what Eastwood's interested in. And it's that's in the script is the thing. Yeah. Like right at the, top, the head, they said these kids are a little disturbed and the, the moms maybe don't, recognize that or they don't react the best way mm-hmm. and they put them in this Christian school you said they're also miserable there and they're they're spending their entire lives looking for that outlet and rather than it feel like some sort of itchy quest like they need to find something they need to do this because it's sort of in their blood yeah the Clint Eastwood turns it into this weird sort of destiny narrative mm. and destiny narratives are boring generally speaking all, all you have to do to write a destiny narrative is put a, a reference to the end of the film at the beginning that's all <laughs> that's all you really need to do and then have some and then halfway through have another scene where somebody says no you were destined to do so according to this old text boom you got a destiny narrative it's the simplest thing to write you know what it's it is lazy is what you, it is you know what it is it's like when um I guarantee you this is how a lot of James Bond movies got written yeah. They wrote they wrote the the, you know, the setup and the action and the, the plot and the story. Mm. And then when they wrote themselves into a corner, they said, okay, what kind of gadget could he have that would get him out of this? Mm. Okay, we're going to add that to the gadget scene earlier in the well, movie. They, they write the cue scene last. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> now they know what they need to oh. get out of the movie. Exactly. exactly. You're like, oh no, he needs some kind of grappling hook. Okay, his belt's a grappling hook. Add that to the cue scene. Like, that's what you do. And mm. it's the same thing you're right with these mm. kinds of destiny narratives. You know, But at that same time, I... I do think that it can be interesting because look, great great tragedy is based off of destiny. Mm. The idea that you know these no, ancient the storytelling tra- thing, yeah, well, no. Oedipus, but also just the idea that you know, in the Greek tradition, you were only supposed to tell stories that people knew. They were, mm. You weren't supposed to make up your own stories. <laughs> you know, Oedipus was a story other people had told. Right. It was a famous story. You know, they didn't make that one up. So it's already predestined because we already know what's going to happen. So all that really matters is how it comes through in the telling. We could glean as much about this event from a reading a Wikipedia page about the, the failed terrorist attack mm. as we can from this movie. And that, I think, is the ultimate failure of the film, is that I don't feel like I understand that event mm. or the people involved in it that much better. Yeah. You know who you know who would really love this movie? Are the people in the movie? Yeah, uh, that's the point. It, it feels like a prize it, for them. Yeah, it, it's it's a prize for them, and it's sort of a good way to reminisce. It's just a nostalgia trip for the actors themselves more mm. than anybody, or the people who knew them. It's a, a, an excuse for them to take their friends to a movie, point to the screen, and say, "Hey, look, we went to Venice, just like we did in real life." Yeah, 
And a, a huge portion of this movie is devoted to that tourism. They're just sort of bumming around Europe, mm-hmm. doing touristy stuff. Looking not, up women's skirts like a bunch of pervs. Uh, yeah, like flirting yeah. with women, going to a club, going on trains, going on hikes, and not doing it. Like, they're not learning anything. Yeah. They're not enriching themselves. They're just sort of taking in the sights. Yeah. And there's, there's no point made of what they're doing there or why it's just that's where they were when the attack happened yeah so they it's like they needed an excuse to put them there and then Again. they just sort of shot the rodeo and they shot the rodeo for like 30 shoot the rodeo by the way it's a, a filmmaking term if you are a filmmaker and there is a local rodeo you can film the rodeo and use that to pad out your film and that's exciting cheap way to like have a crowd scene yeah essentially uh so yeah what they did is they just went to europe they visited the same place they visited, they were just sort of catching up on their own lives. Hmm. That's not interesting for me. No, not It's interesting for those guys. Well, I feel like it's interesting for people who, and you're right, anyone who knows them, yeah. and anyone who knows people like them. I feel like that's what this is made for. I feel like this is made, this is like a novelty act mm. for people who, again, are soldiers, are related to soldiers. Hey, soldiers did a really cool thing. Mm. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to see them uh, take a victory lap. Okay, and we, yeah, get to, and we get to pay to see them take a victory lap. And if you just, if all you want from this movie is something that supports those guys and what they did, you'll get that. It's, mm. It is. I, I wouldn't call. It, I, I know you feel like it's a little warmongery, but I feel like it's mostly positive. Mm. I, I mean, it does. It does treat war as something to aspire to rather than something to bemoan. Well, I, I'm always frustrated when I see a war movie about people who don't have any thoughts about war. Yeah, you know, like that's always that's why I like that's why I like something like The Hurt Locker. That's a film that uh, you know depicts the soldier's experience, Mm. uh, but it's also very critical of sort of the conflicts and the violence that goes into those conflicts, and how war can damage you even if you're a survivor. Mm. It's really ambivalent about war, and I I really appreciate that sort of narrative. Well, there's a film where it has a lot of thoughts on its mind about the soldier's experience and about. Uh, conflict, and you can have a film like The Hurt Locker mm-hmm. or uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, or all these films that are kind of pretty staunchly anti-war. Yeah, like clearly supposed to be anti-war films, and that sort of narrative about people who you know who understand that war is hell and have mm-hmm. com- complex feelings about it, it all fits. You can also do a film that supports troops and even supports, at least in the abstract, uh, armed conflicts overseas when it feels necessary. And still be thoughtful about it. There's a Christian film that came out last year we reviewed on the on our other show uh, called Indivisible. Mm, I didn't see Indivisible. Which was really smart and thoughtful. And it was about uh, a chaplain in, I think, the Army. Mm. Maybe the Marines. I think the Army, though. And he goes overseas. And he is expected to be the moral uh, and uh, spiritual bedrock right. for everyone around him. And everyone around him is going through hard times. People they know are being killed or shot and their mortality is staring them in the face and he has to have difficult conversations about how to connect to them and then only when he comes home does he realize that that entire time his psychological well-being and spiritual needs mm. were not being tended to in return okay. and so even though he was seemed very healthy on the front at home he's a wreck he's mm. suffering from serious post-traumatic stress and it's a film that acknowledges the complexity of the soldier's experience while still being very pro-soldier. And, in, and even though it's not something that I think under normal circumstances hmm. would match up to my perspective 
of war, and in particular the conflicts that we're currently enmeshed in. I had a lot of respect for that film, and I think it can be done in okay. a way that is very appealing to people in that situation, and also so intelligent and so sensitive mm-hmm. that it can engross people who don't have those don't have those experiences. Okay. So I think it can be done, and I'm frustrated that Clint Eastwood, a filmmaker who can make great movies, really seemed like he just took a pass on this one. <laughs> it really does seem like he just plopped a camera down. Mm-hmm. You'll notice there's several scenes in the movie where like they reuse the same stage, and they never change the camera setup. There's like a scene in, like when the kids are in school and they're in the hallway and like mm-hmm. some guy comes in and says they don't have a hall pass. They do that oh, scene yeah. like three times and it's the, the cam- same angle. The yeah, camera they, angle they just is locked all- it locked it down, changed costumes, and did all yeah. three takes. It's yeah. really I mean it's efficient, but it's pretty damn lazy for Clint Eastwood, a major filmmaker, mm-hmm. to just sort of yeah, if you're shooting on wash the, his hands of this one. If you're shooting on the fly, you're yeah. doing something guerrilla style, or you have a really low budget, this I understand eight, that. Yeah, this but. is an eight hundred thousand dollar movie, fine. But like, come on, Clint, you, you're a little better than that. Like, <laughs> it's still mid budget. It's made for like I think thirty million dollars. Regardless, but still, Clint, Clint Eastwood knows the, better than that. Move the camera, Clint. Come and on, Clint Eastwood also usually has really kind of. Even when it's not appropriate, he has really uh, interesting kind of hazy photography. Yeah. I mean, you shoot something like Unforgiven that way, it makes sense. You shoot something like Jersey Boys that way, it looks like crap. But uh, he at least has an interesting photographer working for him. This, it's just a camera. It's like a consumer-grade camera. He's got the same photographer who's worked with many, many times. It's Tom Stern. He shot Mystic River. He Mm. shot Mandela Baby. He shot Letters from Iwo Jima. Great-looking movie. Changeling, uh, uh, Invictus. He's shot a lot of Eastwood films. He shot The Meg. <laughs> no kidding. Fun looking shark movie. I like The Meg. Yeah, The Meg is a fun, dumb movie. Yeah. I like The Meg. Uh, he knows how to shoot a movie. I feel like they thought they were shooting someone's diary and they really didn't put a lot of effort into mm. this. And it really and the, shows. It just feels dispassionate and perfunctory. And the book this film was... Ba- like they, they, they had their... Uh, their experience. Then they wrote a book about it, and then they made the film on the book. Yeah. And they started. They did the original guys. How did they get Clint Eastwood to do this? I'm surprised they did just didn't do it themselves. <laughs> I just, think just wrote and directed the Clint, film themselves. Clint Eastwood is one of the more prominent, outwardly conservative filmmakers in the in Hollywood. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and he he speaks at Republican national conventions, yeah, and, and it, his films do tend to have a very Republican philosophy yeah. and the um. That sort of self-reliance, pull yourself up by your bootstraps philosophy mm-hmm. that is, is the, the Ameri- typically attributed to the the American right. America was built on macho toughness yeah, is, yeah, is a theme yeah, in a yeah. lot of his so, films. So yeah. it, it makes sense that at the beginning of a Clint Eastwood film, there would be a scene where they reject the words of uh, you know, a weak psychologist. Don't listen to her. Mm-hmm. They just Public need to, schools. Yeah, pol- you just yeah. need to man up and do it yourself. You know, well, that, that, And all of a lot of that, this sort of hatred of the... Uh, the bureau- your bureaucracy is a theme that you find in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. That's what that movie. Uh, which one did he do? Sully or Tully? <laughs> <laughs> Tully. Tully. That's what no. Tully. It was Sully. 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 Tully was the one with Charlie Theron. Okay. Yeah, and that right. different movie. <laughs> Sully is Sully uh, yeah. is very much about that. F- hatred of the bureaucracy even though in that film it's completely made up there was yeah, actually wasn't no, bureauc- no bureaucratic problems in the in real life they, <laughs> they made it up to, for the movie they had to invent them in order to appeal to a target demo yeah. but yeah uh, so 
I, I understand that he has this philosophy, and I understand that's something he's going to put in his movies. Sometimes he's graceful. He's not here. And he's, yeah. he, and when he's not graceful, his political agenda begins to come right to the surface. Yeah. It's readable immediately. And as such, it feels like propaganda. It feels like a... a, a um, oh, what's the word I'm searching for? Uh-huh. Just a... It has a, it has its own uh, agenda. It's an agenda. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and again, you can make movies with an agenda. Oh, you're, no. you're allowed. That's a well, lot of the best movies ever made are made and, with a very specific agenda. And every film does. That's yeah. uh, but uh, not every film is, is oh. a transparent about it and b so overtly political about well, it. Well, I, I, we've made the argument before, and I stand mm. by it that all films are political. Yeah. If not necessarily uh, by intent, then by inference. Right. Because you're either telling a story or making a work of art uh, to criticize something you see, the world is unjust mm. in some way, or you're saying that everything is fine and doesn't need to be criticized with your art, mm. which is itself a political statement. It's saying the status quo is A-OK. <laughs> um, and some some filmmakers are more passionate about it than others. They're more overt. Mm. Clint Eastwood can hide it, when he wants to and tell a story that can be appreciated on a superficial level and then you come back around to whatever it's actually like about about and Uh then you can start seeing you know his messaging and then there are films which are pretty fucking obvious about it like American Sniper (laughs) and when it comes to 1517 it's odd because you'd think this would be more blindly patriotic than it actually is because it's such a story, it's it's a story that people don't find a lot of fault with. Mm. These guys did something great, yeah, yeah the, agreed. These, I, I, and, and they they did great because they were in the American military, and they yeah, were in the American military training. because they really wanted to be, and that was yeah. a good thing for them to pursue. All of those things are great. Problem is, there's literally nothing else to it. <laughs> and unlike the other film that we're going to be talking about in just a few seconds, because I'm done talking about this. Uh, None of the drama, none of the backstory, none of the scenes, none of the dialogue, none of the acting from these guys, who, again, as far as I know, the nicest guys in the world, not professional actors, you never get a sense of their inner world. Mm. It never feels like if this event didn't happen, Mm -hmm. their lives would be interesting enough to make a movie about it. No, no. They're just not interesting characters. They're not interesting characters. And I think what Clint Eastwood, in casting them as themselves revealed was that their inner life kind of is their outer life. Their mm. outer life and their inner life are the same. There's not a lot of... That's not the kind of character you usually make a movie out of. No, there's usually something like to explore, something that you know we get underneath their skin about. Or if it is a, a, like a character who is all surface, then you have to have like a really stylish filmmaker. I'm thinking of like The Beach Bum, the Harmony Korean mm-hmm. movie, which is about Matthew McConaughey playing Matthew McConaughey. And that's all there is to him. It's like, well, you need to sober up. Well, if I do, I don't want to. And he doesn't. And he succeeds because he doesn't. Like, that's all there is to him. He's, there's there's no richness to that character at all. And I think that's kind of the point with Harmony Kareen's movie. And, yeah. But you're when, when say something about that. Yeah, though. exactly. He, he at least is making a comment about that superficiality. And here, Clint Eastwood isn't. He's thinking that the superficiality is enough. And it's not. It's kind of. It's kind of not, not not something to make a movie about. Yeah, and yet you can live that life. That's great. But if you're going to film it, bring a film what's, sensibility to it. What's fascinating to me is that we're living again. We're living in this era where so many people that we know, mm. or or that or we ourselves, depending on who's listening, have been to war. 
mm. have had actual experiences overseas in armed conflict or at least uh, adjacent to armed conflict and those experiences have changed them and changed the way that they think and you look at a lot of the movies that are coming out of this era it feels like they're being made more for their families than it is for them yeah than it is to speak to that because you look at the kind of movies that were made by veterans of other wars world mm. war one world war two Korea to a certain extent, certainly Vietnam, there's a lot more that seems to be said in a lot of those films. Yeah. You look at, like, uh, Platoon, Mm. for example. Oliver Stone, for all of his many flaws, (laughs) was very passionate about bringing that very specific, harrowing, Mm. life-altering experience to the screen. And he wasn't interested in making it milquetoast. He wanted to show you the the underlying horrifying psychology of war, yeah. And you look at even some veterans of what might be considered more noble wars, mm. wars in which uh, it seems as though uh, American soldiers were more on the right side of history, like World War Two. Mm. The films that filmmakers who saw war, actors who saw combat, uh, made, tended to be more sensitive and thoughtful. And case in point. William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives. William mm. Wyler, who went to World War II, uh-huh. who used a crew, as as my understanding, is almost exclusively comprised of veterans in order to make the experience, you know, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And told a story about what happens after war. During the war. Hmm. It was made during the war. It was made, well, so, a little well, bit. It, it, was, it was made, it came out in uh, 19... 19- 46 so like the war was still fresh in our minds that's my point yeah it was still everyone was still right out the end of it and world war ii was an enormously Mm. consequential period in american history and of course world history but speaking specifically about america uh, a significant part of the american population went overseas Mm. to face armed combat uh, they left behind uh, families and women who were encouraged to uh, leave the household and actually join the workforce, which helped jumpstart the uh, feminist movement of the 20th century, made the world a better place. Um, and when all of those guys came back, most of them had seen some shit. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was completely traumatized and he passed that trauma down Oof. to multiple generations of my mother's side of the family. My father's side, not so much. A little bit more positive experience. Mm. But everyone who returned from that war had a lot to deal with. And The Best Years of Our Lives is and, one and, of the films... An ironic title. Yes. Yeah. Ironic and yet apt, in a, in mm. a way. Uh, it is a film that is not so much about the war. We never see them in war. In fact, the opening scene is them all going home. Mm. It's But the, the well, war comes with them. The opening scene is all of them coming home... Uh, talking about what they're going to do now. Mm. And the main character, uh, played by Frederick March, mm. uh, he, he doesn't know. He openly says he doesn't know what he's going to do. Yeah, he's different now. Yeah, he just yeah. He has a family, he has a wife, and this he has is two something, kids, he hasn't seen him in years. And this is a, a lot of uh, soldier narratives. You'll find that the war was so intense and they experienced such horrendous things that they cannot go back to regular life. Mm. I mean, you see that even... 
it, my favorite scene in the Hurt Locker is all about this, where he's back home from the war. He's back with his family. She says, go pick out some cereal. He goes to the cereal aisle and there's this really soul crushing shot where he's standing in front of the cereal, just looking at this overwhelming selection of breakfast cereals. And you can see, see, even from the back of his head, it's like, this is meaningless. This is absurd. Why do we have 800 kinds of cereal? This is not what I, life is about. I'm I, used I to saw people getting their limbs blown yeah. off, and now I have to pick out you know the different color boxes. This is, this is obscene. So the best years of our lives is about three men coming back from war, and they're all yeah. adjusting in different ways. Uh, uh, Frederick March mm-hmm. plays uh, Sergeant Al Stevenson. Uh, he comes back to uh, a wonderful wife, uh, played by Myrna Loy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two kids, including uh, the incredible Teresa Wright, who is one of the great young actors of the 1940s. And every yeah, time yeah, you yeah. see her in a movie, you're just like, yay! Because she's always great. Yeah, she was um, in uh, Mrs. Miniver. Uh, Mrs. Miniver. She was in uh, Shadow of a Doubt, one of Hitchcock's best films. Mm. Uh, he has a bank job to come home to, and yet he can't see the fucking point. Yeah. <laughs> why, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. Um, and then he's uh, he's joined by, and they all meet on the way home. They weren't like in war together. Mm. They just happened to come from the same hometown and meet each other on the way back. Um, he's uh, uh, joined by Fred uh, Derry, played by Dana Andrews. Uh, he got in a shotgun marriage just before he left, probably not thinking he'd come back. Right. And now he is coming back to a wife he knew for like a day. And, and who, they, yeah, they don't have any sort of relationship, and when they develop one, it is horrible. <laughs> and he's stuck with it, and it's really, really crap. And and you know what? It's it's wonderfully filmed. It's so the, good. Just the hate they have drama. for each other is just so well It's well such good drama. Dramatized. And on top of it all, you know, in the, in the army, he had status, he had responsibility, he had respect. Mm. In fact, he's actually higher, like, ranked than Frederick March was. And Frederick Marge is like 10 years his senior. Mm. <laughs> it's like it was, he, he was doing well yeah. in the armed forces. But now he's back. And you know what he was before he left? A soda jerk. Mm. If, yeah. you don't, if you don't know that term, if you're young, okay. Uh, back um, in the day. Uh, Drugstores had soda fountains. Yeah, drugstores were a little bit more like mini department stores. They were just yeah. a, little, a little bit more ambitious, a little bit bigger. And they had food counters mm. and soda jerks. Just gave you nice mm. sodas and pie and sandwiches mm. and stuff. And as good a job as any, but it wasn't particularly dignified and he doesn't want to go back to that mm. that sucks i would love to be a 1940s soda jerk now yeah if, if i if i ever get thrown back in time will you help me get a soda jerk job i'll try right. i'll be i won't be born yet you're no, thrown no, back in time not me you're thrown back in time too in oh, this scenario okay. and, and a lot of other people i know Good. just just so i have friends <laughs> in the 1940s and this is another one of those old movies where i'm watching it like there's a scene where he goes back to his uh old uh, mm. uh drugstore and now it's like it's gone a little corporate, like it's been bought out by a national chain, and it's right. bigger, and it's full of people mm. shopping and everything. And I'm seeing like like a hundred people, give mm. or take, like in this big shot, and they're all white. Mm. And it reminded me, oh yeah, this was intensely segregated. Oh and yeah, there's a really good chance that every single character in this movie is racist, <laughs> and we just never talk about it. Mm. It was it's a always film, frustrating. It was a film made in the 1940s. That's just that's yeah. the way the world was. I and know, but they, they, don't, they don't address so it because they don't think about it as the thing. Exactly, they're not thinking mm. about it. But you watch it today, and it's a little distracting. Mm. Uh, but in any case, and the other storyline uh, involves the incredible performance by Ooh. Harold Russell, mm. a a soldier, well, more or less himself, playing himself. He was yeah. a soldier. Uh, he was in demolitions, and he was in an accident, and he lost. 
not just his hands, like his whole arms, like just below the elbow. Yeah. And he has two hooks for hands. Mm. He was working in documentaries. He was like playing himself in World War II, like documentary films about mm. rehabilitating soldiers. When mm. William Wyler noticed him and said, "Oh, we got to get this guy in the movie." Mm. Originally, the character was simply suffering from extreme post-traumatic stress, like more so than the other two. Here, there was like, okay, he's going to actually suffer through physical yeah. duress, and-, and then the the storyline he has about needing simultaneously to be treated exactly the way he already he always was but also with sensitivity because he's he's changed uh-huh. is so rich and complicated it's, it's so well told it's rich and it's complicated and you realize that his desires are the healthiest possible thing mm-hmm. the other characters are really damaged and you know mm-hmm. they they go off and they drink or they're really aimless or they can't find a job and they're just yeah. They, they I got hate the life and they hate themselves. I got the impression that Fred, by the end of the film, uh, was seriously contemplating suicide. Like, no, they didn't that, push it, but he's basically... In, in, in the plain graveyard, yeah. that's what that scene was. Yeah, basically. They couldn't yeah. spell it out too clearly, but that's the moment. Yeah, for, the, the, near the end of the movie, he goes out into where all of the disused World War II bombers are now parked. And now he, is, and, he too, and, is disused and, World yeah, War II detritus. So it's, it's simple symbolism, but it's really effective. Yeah. And yeah, that... All these things are dead, so it's essentially saying he's also dead. Yeah, and and he may scene. as well be dead. And he does he doesn't like hold a gun to his temple or anything. But if it, so were, obvious, if it were filmed today, they would do that. They would do something really yeah, obvious. It's exactly like that, that kind yeah. of low despair mm-hmm. moment. But yeah, but yeah, um, Harold Russell's character, uh, his name is Homer. Yeah, uh, Homer is he's physically damaged by the war, but he seems to have used it to get back up again. He's, yeah. he's a lot stronger now than he was when he you know first suffered. And now he's... His fight for dignity is much more believable and much more relatable and I think much realer than perhaps the comparatively more melodramatic stories that William Wyler wrote, because it's mm. him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's playing himself, and we I think we get it more. And yeah. when we have him... And he's very natural on camera, too. Like, he's not stiff. And he's I, yeah, very... Wyler sincere. knew how to write this character. Like, he, I think he wrote the part a little bit differently for him, so mm-hmm. he could actually... Well, he, Wyler didn't write bit, this. Or, he sorry, probably the, contributed. The, Robert, the filmmakers, I Robert say, E. Yeah. Sherwood wrote the screenplay. Uh, you Based might on own. a novel. Uh, yeah, and I'm trying to think what else you would have um, known. McKinley Cantor, who wrote uh, Andersonville as well. Uh, he also wrote The Petrified Forest. Mm. Uh, this is the know. screenwriter. I'm sorry, that was the play, The Petrified Forest. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah. Mm. But yeah, no, like, Wait, I, yeah. I feel like the writing in those scenes was a little different, though. They mm. actually, like, altered the film just enough mm. so that they were able to get a much more natural story out of him. Because he did Rebecca and he did The Bishop's Wife. Two great screenplays. Excellent. Okay. Just wanted a, to be clear. A lot, a lot of good Hollywood golden age talent. Credit where yeah. credit is due. Um, but to say it again, they wrote it, they wrote it differently for him. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, and I think, yeah, if you're dealing with a real person, you're getting a much more natural story. Uh-huh. When you're dealing with fictional characters, you do have to, you're sort of under pressure to give them a, a much more dramatic arc. Mm-hmm. And you also notice that this is not a time period, and frankly, we're still not in a time period like mm-hmm. this, where people with that level of disability are given lead roles in films. That's, like, yeah, that's true. And in fact, what they'll do is, okay, well, we'll get like a like a professional actor and we'll use CGI to yeah, erase their yeah. legs or something. And mm-hmm. yeah, 1947, they just got someone who actually like understood the experience. Mm-hmm. And he is the only actor in history to win two Academy Awards for the same role. 
Oh, that's, uh, that's right. He won a Special Academy Award for being an inspiration uh-huh. after World War II and with good cause. And allegedly, he got that in- that honorary award because he was considered a long shot for Best Supporting Actor, but then he ended up winning that too. So, yeah, <laughs> two Oscars for the same role. Good for him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's wonderful. And I love... I'm trying to think of what, what was the last like actor with a disability you remember seeing. Millicent Simmons, I guess, from yeah, The Quiet Place. Has, yeah. I've seen her in two movies. She was also in that film, uh, Wonderstruck. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, mm. yeah, the interesting thing, and I love it, is uh, we spend a lot of time with our three leads mm. before they go home. And there's a bit where just when their cab walks up to every house and they all suggest, let's not go in yet. <laughs> because they're <laughs> yeah, actually... Let's go to the bar first. They're comfortable with each other. Everyone that they're in the car with understands their shared experience and they're very mm. even even homer with with his hooks mm. for hands he knows that they're cool yeah he's scared of going home and seeing his family who know what he's what what happened to him but they haven't seen it yet mm. and he doesn't know how they're going to respond are they going to pity him Oops, are they going to uh uh be scared are they going to be uncomfortable how changed is his experience home life going to be from what he wants to go back to. He just wants to go back to normal. Gosh, I love every scene in this movie. It's, it's really so quite good. Like, it's really yeah. quite bright. And and it's the same thing with, with uh, Frederick March. He wants to have all this wonderful, you know, relationship with his family and kids. He also wants to fuck off and go drinking. He drags mm. his wife and daughter <laughs> bar hopping. <laughs> That's what he does. There's this huge extended sequence where he drags them from bar to bar while he gets drunk as a skunk. Mm. It's really awkward for them. And I love Myrna Loy in this movie because you know she loves him. She loves him with every mm. inch of her heart. But they have a conversation later where they explain to their daughter, I have told your father that I hate him and I meant it. We have had to re-fall in love <laughs> multiple times. It has not been an easy marriage, but we are committed to this. And sometimes he just pisses me mm. off. And you can tell early on. She she knows he's back from the war. She's happy to see him. She's not really happy about this drinking thing he brought back with him. <laughs> but it's really human and it's really great. It, the Best Years of Our Lives is a really unusual uh, coming home picture. Yeah. Um, it, now, when we had films like, well, Coming Home, and also like post-Vietnam <laughs> films like First Blood and Rolling mm-hmm. Thunder, mm-hmm. they were, I, I think, I feel like they were very similar because they were about how the war sort of marked the experience. But mm-hmm. there was a big swath of films, even war films, that came out in the 1950s after the best years of our lives that started to gloss over this experience a lot and mm-hmm. war became really heroic yeah and it's a lot it, of it was stop being fresh in people's yeah, lives. A, people a start stop films, remembering all the bad stuff and they only want to talk about the good stuff a lot of films about sort of the the white suburban experience became very placid and very ideal and that's kind of the vibe you get when you look at a lot of the media and a lot of uh, biographies of the 1950s it was this time of economic prosperity it was the baby boom and Everything was really, really hunky-dory in the public eye, if you were a white straight male. And even then, there's an underbelly. And even then, there was a lot of suffering that people just weren't talking about. The best years of our lives, it's like it snuck in before that could happen. Mm -hmm. 
it, they're going to be really honest about a lot of the dark uh, horrors that suburban life entails, especially right after the war. There's a lot of pain and regret, not just because of the war, but in suburban life, between the in the marriages. The relationships are all falling apart. People are alcoholics. People are suicidal. All of these things are right on the forefront in something like The Best Years of Our Lives. I feel like The Best Years of Our Lives is a story of three tragedies narrowly averted. That's a good way of looking at it. You know, like Frederick March has a family to come home to, and if he didn't, God only knows what would have happened to him. Mm. Uh, uh, Fred Derry, uh, uh, Dan Andrews, Mm. he comes home to an awful marriage. Like a really terrible marriage. And like, and they're just openly cheating on each other. Yeah. It's just, yeah. And he's like, he, he ends up falling for Frederick March's uh, daughter, Teresa Wright. Um, and they have such easy chemistry and they like each other so much that very quickly. And this is the production code we're talking about here. This was taboo. Hmm. He made out with her like in a, in public, <laughs> like in, in a parking lot hmm. and in the middle of the day. And he just flat out says that needed to happen. <laughs> we both knew that that was going to happen. We're both clearly into each other. And now we need to stay the hell away from each other because technically I'm married. Mm. And I love Teresa Wright because she's, this guy's friends with her dad. She's going to run into him and she's clearly in love with him and he's clearly in love with her. And he's clearly in a loveless marriage. And there's this scene where they're at a restaurant and she is in the restroom with uh, Dana Andrews' wife. Mm. And she's talking about how just blankly unhappy she is uh-huh. about how like back when he was in the war when I was allowed to work in nightclubs selling sex uh, or at least sexuality mm-hmm. uh, we were we were in the money but now he's we're soda jerk again and we're making $32 a week this is the shittiest marriage ev- ever and and Teresa Wright's looking at her like holy shit and I love it when she comes home she comes home and she has a speech that again for production code feels like the sort of thing you'd never be able to say mm. she just tell, looks at her mom and looks at her brother and says I'm gonna break that marriage up and, and everybody says top hole go for it no they don't <laughs> no they don't they actually tell her who are you to play God well, they, and then the, and they actually but, they, they ask her how are you sure has he told you he's unhappy well not no, in so many but, words has she told you he's unhappy yeah. not in so many words I, I got the, the, the she got their blessing kind of but no oh, I feel like well, I, I, feel I, like, I, feel, I feel like they, they weren't enthusiastic about it, but they got. They said it's okay. Go they, for it. I think they, this is the healthy thing. It is the healthy thing, but again, it was also the production code, mm-hmm. and she was kind of told to mind her own business. But she also basically breaks up that marriage by the end. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, the marriage breaks up on its own. It yeah. would have. It's only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's certainly an impetus for it. The end of the movie. Mm. So goddamn sweet. So Homer was dating, and I think maybe engaged to, to a woman when he left. Mm. And since he got back, he's been pushing her away because mm. his needs are very much in conflict with each other. He wants people to understand his disability, but also treat him like he isn't disabled. Mm. Complex. Yeah. And she wants him to give her a chance to get used to that and simultaneously be someone who understands his needs well enough to treat him the same way she always did, but also be able to be his caregiver. Right. There's a great bit where he's like, come up to bed with me. And you think maybe it's going to get sexy, but it's not. He has to explain to her, this is the scariest part of my day because I know how to take these hooks off. I can't put them on again. Mm. At once these hooks are off, I'm helpless. I can't, I can't read. I can't smoke a cigarette. I can't, if the door closes, I can't leave this room. And she has to, to deal with that. Mm. And once they finally 
I come to an understanding. They get married. It's the end of the movie. It's adorable. And I love the way Greg Tolan frames this. Greg Tolan, the guy who shot Citizen Kane, shot this movie too, and it's great. Um, the marriage is happening all on the right side of the screen, while Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright are just staring at each other on the left. <laughs> and then when the marriage is, oh is finally consummated, everyone floods the right side of the screen, and it's just Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright together, and then they kiss, and it's like the perfect framing. <laughs> it's like how you frame a scene. Like, it's absolute cinematic perfection. I feel like they don't do that in movies anymore. They, they don't they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't very do, well. Well, the... the this happened. This is camera technology. Everything's really handheld now. A lot of uh, the 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 aesthetic isn't locked down any longer. Mm. Unless, unless you're unless you're considered very mannered as a filmmaker, like Wes yeah. Anderson, still does shit like that. Yeah, but yeah. but now people call attention to the fact that yeah. the camera's locked down. Everything else is really handheld and very naturalistic. I like yeah, just, I like lockdown. I I, if I, I, made, I love lockdown. It's if just, I made movies, most of my shit would be locked down yeah. because buy, you have to you have buy to a tripod. You, yeah. you have the plan. You have to scheme. You have mm. to frame. You have to tell the story within it. It's not about you are there. It's about you are telling a story. Yeah, and that's and, a it's an aesthetic. It's, it's, not, aesthetic. it's not better. Or worse than another it's just how i'd probably do it it's it's and it's even when you look at like the big blockbusters the only lockdown shots are the usual like shot counter shots or mm-hmm. over over the shoulder establishing over shoulder over shoulder. it's like the really boring stuff and yeah whenever they do anything that has any sort of dynamism they have a moving camera and even even if it's a big professional camera they try to have it in motion all the time it's all about fluidity and mm. It's a choice, an aesthetic choice. It's a trend, but yeah, you can't have a shot like that one anymore. I don't think you <laughs> in could. In the best years of our lives. I think it would pop, though. I think people would be really impressed. I think it would be like, ooh, filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> this is neat. They thought this one out. They didn't just throw a camera in someone's hands and shoot it. Mm. They actually had to plan out who would stand where and what it mm. means. I think a lot of the old world photographers couldn't adapt. Like, you look at the career of someone like Dean Cundy, yeah. who shot, you know, Jurassic Park and Back to the Future Big Trouble Old China Trouble, yeah, yeah. Halloween even and yeah uh, Halloween's a great movie and, and great yeah, looking movie these are great looking movies and he also did like I think Dennis the Menace and okay. Jack and Jill a lot and of I filmmakers think... a lot of great directors of photography uh, end up shooting films that don't make the most of their talent because they, they gotta work well, I, they, they, I, they can't all be Schindler's List they gotta, I, I you're gonna make some damn comedies I understand they gotta work but <laughs> I mean you you look at the photography in something like Jack and Jill, and he doesn't have any dynamism. He's just sort of shooting. No, he's, it. he's doing his job that yeah. day. They they can't all be winners. At some I, point, you just have to shoot the damn movie. I, I understand. I would just hope someone like Dean Cundy, with a lot of talent yeah. and an understanding of the way light works, I like to think that he was unable to adapt to sort of just a changing filmmaking milieu rather than the fact that he was just phoning it in, which is probably more of the case. I I love how romantic you are. I like to think that his career failed. (laughs) Like, it wasn't just like him just like going along with the times and not getting great projects that challenged him. I like to to think think that he was just like too good for this world. (laughs) Sure, why not? Um, The Best Years of Our Lives is... I forgot how long this movie was. It's about three hours long. I hadn't seen this movie since college, and Mm. when I revisited it, I was like, I'd set aside the two hours of the evening, Mm. thinking that'll about cover it. And two hours in, I'm just like, he hasn't even broken up with his wife yet. How long (laughs) is this? And I forgot it was three hours. It it does fly. Mm. It's a very, it's it's a very really watchable. This movie worth remembering. Mm. This was a blockbuster. This night, this movie from like 1947, 46, 46. 
uh, was the biggest moneymaker since Gone with the Wind eight years prior. Wow. This was what blockbusters used to look like. The kinds of movies that we see now, mm-hmm. action movies and sci-fi movies, there was a time, I'm not saying it was a better time, but there was a time when that was considered not... That was considered a gamble box office-wise. Uh-huh. Like, you might do okay if you're Hitchcock and you've got a good thriller, but mostly... Those are the B pictures. Those are the things people aren't going to run out to see mm. because they weren't really capturing people's imagination. Best years of our lives connected. It was like American was, Sniper, like but said, everyone was, liked it. It was like, like I said, the war was still on. Yeah, not technically, no. but yeah, it was. It was like, still it was, fresh it in, everyone's it was in everybody's mind. Every, yeah. Everybody was still sort of fighting that, and you know, it was the war didn't end, and we weren't moving on right away. And yeah. and they were making it. I mean, it was written while the war was still on. The novel was it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The, the, the novel was published in 45, so he was okay. writing it, you know, right at the tail end of the war. Unless he was very yeah. quick. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the novel uh, was, uh, it's actually a novella mm. called Glory for Me uh, by McKinley Cantor. No. Uh, who, who I said also wrote Andersonville, which is a well-known war novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Best Years of Our Lives holds the fuck up. And I think it's a sort of film that, even though it's set in the 1940s and there are certain aspects of it that don't really feel super relevant to our daily life experience today, the stories of soldiers experiencing something life-changing and then trying to adapt is so textured. <laughs> and so and when uni- captivating uni- in a world still yeah. dealing with wars. Yeah, all of this it, stuff it's is going still relevant. to be relevant. People coming back from war, not mm. having necessarily the same place in their community or in the job market that they used to have, dealing with post-traumatic stress, which all of them are, mm. uh, dealing with physical disability, yeah, which they, one of them is. They didn't call it post-traumatic stress back then either. Shell shock. Shell shock. Yeah. I just, I, I'm, I, he's shell shocked. Yeah, which makes it sound a little bit, le- a little bit less permanent. Le- less, yeah, it's just shock, something you can sort of shake off yeah, and get give, over. Give which, him a few weeks, he'll be fine, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's not how that works. But, um... Yeah, this movie is incredibly relevant. It is incredibly beautiful. It is an excellent example of a soldier playing themselves and giving you a window into their interior world. Mm. Um, that it speaks. It it's beautiful. It's mm. a beautiful motion picture. Uh, it won Best Picture, the Academy Awards. One of the times when I feel like they got it right. <laughs> Um, well, let me look. Let's, yeah, well, let's, let's look up what it's what it was. That's up actually a good point. I because, forgot. Uh, I forgot to check that. It, 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 it's an excellent film. It certainly deserves Best Picture. But you know what it what it beat out in forty six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's uh, okay. Best Picture nineteen forty six. Boopity boopity boo. Oh wait, I probably want nineteen forty seven. I hate. I always hate that because yeah, they, they, they have they, it the next year, and that's yeah, the, okay. Best years of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, 19th Academy Awards. Okay, it was up against... Oh, actually, good stuff. Uh, It was up against Laurence Olivier's Henry V, which we've actually covered on the show before, Mm -hmm. and it's great. It was up against It's a Wonderful Life, which is (laughs) one of my picks for the best movie ever made. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Razor's Edge, which I haven't seen. The Tyrone Power, that one. And The Yearling, which I know about but haven't seen. 
Okay, well, that it beat out It's a Wonderful Life, now it seems like a, a, a big injustice. Uh, but it's a Wonderful the, Life wasn't a huge hit back in the day. It, it was. It's sort of like uh, Forrest Gump beating out... Uh, Pulp Fiction. Well, beating out Pulp Fiction was one thing. It's, oh, it's like Forrest Gump beating out The Shawshank Redemption. Oh, there you go. Which at the time was a critically acclaimed film, but no one gave a shit. No, no, nobody saw it. Nobody cared. It tanked at the box office. Yeah, it was a huge bomb. Everyone thought it was a huge mistake. Got a bunch of award nominations. Didn't one, win one anything. Zero, yeah. Won zero <laughs> Academy Awards. Nominated for a bunch. Zero wins. I think it was, it was nominated for like seven. It was, it was, yeah, it was up for a yeah, bunch. Because it's, it's a great movie. And yet it wasn't until it was on basic cable all the time. Mm-hmm. After they basic, it, same thing happened. It's a wonderful life. They, Once this, it was on TV broadcasts, that's when people rediscovered the it. The studio yeah. gave up on it and they just started putting it on TV all the time. And only when it took no effort to go see it did people realize, shit, this is really good. <laughs> so that's what Beating It's a Wonderful Life was. It's Wonderful Life was not considered a front runner. No. At no, the no. time. Um, but Henry Henry V on the other end that I, was a big fucking deal I, that, I that's the thing it beat really. I also can't get mad about it, uh, Best Years of Our Lives beating out It's a Wonderful Life because no. it's also a great film It's a, it, again For, Forrest Gump is one that is not that great a film I, I feel like that it's, year it's it should have been but, you know. that year should have been between Pulp Fiction and uh, Shawshank mm. if you think about it and it either also, one wins I'm happy they're both great there's also four weddings and a funeral that and year quiz and, show. and quiz show that's yeah. right Quiz show. show's great. It's it's not like life changing. Deserves to be put in the history books. Great. Yeah. It's a great movie. Four Rings and a Funeral. Darling, darling, sweet, funny, unusual romantic comedy. I'm still shocked it got nominated in a year with only five nominees. But it's great. I love that movie. That's a good crop of nominees. Even Forrest Gump, which is another one where I feel like its messaging is actually pretty ugly. <laughs> if you really think about it, mm. it's a technical accomplishment. Yeah. Like I do appreciate. The hippies were wrong. <laughs> Vietnam was a good war. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but for, anyway, for Forrest Gump is a little bit muddled, and it. Anyway, the best years of our lives. If you haven't seen it, do it's wonderful. The fifteen seventeen to Paris, not so much. No. No. Not so much, but we do appreciate James Appleby for uh, requesting it. It's always good to explore something we hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he wrote, uh, as far as I can tell, neither of you reviewed this film. Searching on Google, I found a recording of Whitney on a show where Amy Nicholson reviewed it. But I don't believe it was recovered. It was covered on your main podcast last February. I also don't think it made a place in your worst of 2018 lists either. So I wonder if this one passed you both by. And it did. Uh, to be very clear, I do not consider this to be a good film. <laughs> okay. I do not want to take anything away from the amazing bravery of the stars in real life. But this was, by a large, by a large margin, the strangest thing I saw uh, last year. And, yeah, it's a strange film. But it's the kind of thing that has been done before and way better. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hope you see that version instead. Yeah. I guess you know what I'm guessing we can't have another best years of our lives in until the we, war's over until the war is over and we're Will in this, yeah, we're in this like eight, 18 year long period where we've just been fighting constantly and and now the government is trying to pick a fight with Iran for some reason yeah and, yeah. and, and yeah, we have I'm an kidding admi- I know the reason it sucks well we have we have an administration who says we're not going to get involved in any sort of foreign conflict while stoking foreign conflict it's really weird but um mm-hmm. 
So yeah, un- until we get this sort as of as our cats fight, they sort of sell the point <laughs> why we fight. Until we get a-, a button on a conflict, we can't have these experiences anymore. Like the closest we get is the Hurt Locker, and the end of the Hurt Locker, he goes back. Yeah, <laughs> it's not about the end; it's about how it's endless. Yeah. Same with uh, uh, that movie Jarhead with Jake Gyllenhaal. It's like it's, he it's he went out, he came back, yeah. and every every the whole the trauma was how dissatisfying it was. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like, and what what do we do? We kind of walked around and we got greasy and we witnessed violence and nothing really happened. That that's all the the conflict these co- more recent conflict films have been about. So the closest we can come are these single smaller acts of comparatively smaller acts. Like the, the war isn't ending, but we did foil a terrorist. Right. That was a heroic act. But sure. the war isn't over. Nothing yeah. ended here. Yeah. So all, all we can do really do is tell these littler stories within the broader conflict. And, and we, we never get a, context. We I, yeah, never we, get to look we can't back. Get the context and we can't have the healing period begin because yeah. the wound is constantly being reopened. It sucks. So there's a kind of a romance to the, the best years of our lives. It was a, a, a terrible time because it was a time where the wound was still fresh. But at least it was a film about healing. 1517 has no interest in healing because the healing can never happen. <sighs> That's a good point. That's to, to put the two films next to each other. Well, uh, next time on The Two Shot, uh, we will be back with another poll. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. It is the uh, Twitter account for both Critically Acclaimed and The Two Shot. And every week, mm. you get to pick the quote-unquote notorious movie we get to review. Maybe it's actually bad. Maybe it just has a bad reputation. We'll find out. And since Child's Play <laughs> is coming out, this the, month. The remake of Child's Play. The remake of Child's Play, which is really seems to be more about an evil Amazon Echo than it is about a killer doll. Well, it's considering a, like you control all these other devices and shit. It's not a doll anymore. It's it, it's all re- it's a killer robot. Yeah, now. basically. Yeah. Well, we thought we've actually done a poll like this before, but we love cyber thrillers. <laughs> we love horror stories about modern technology because they're always knee-jerk mm. and pretty ignorant and just this weird fear mongering like your email's gonna get ya so there's no shortage of crappy horror movies about computer technology run amok Mm -hmm. and we thought we'd do one of those so your options are chain letter a horror movie about an online chain letter and if you don't email the chain letter out to other people you get killed with a chain yes Mm -hmm. I'm not making that one up that's like, a thing. I like to think that it's an anthropomorphic chain with a little face on it. Nice. Like Clippy. <laughs> the Clippy murders. <laughs> hey, I hear you're trying to make a murder. <laughs> Need some help? That looks like a shallow grave. <laughs> uh, ne- <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, next up is Fear.com. Uh, fear.com is not fear, period, com. It's fear, the word dot, com. Because it turns out when they were making the movie... Fear.com was taken. Was that so, an actual registered dona- domain name? So what they did was they made a website called Fear.com. Dot com. com. And it's about an evil website that kills you or something. <laughs> I don't know. I've never gotten more than 20 minutes into this movie. I, I, I reviewed this in print like oh in 2002 God. or whenever it came out. Oh, and, uh, my God. And I, I barely remember it. And I do remember that it is a website and like it... Somebody tortures you to death, and then your ghost is, like, uploaded onto the website. You know, like you do. And then, like, the ghosts try to get revenge, or something like... Something? Good stuff. (laughs) All right, next up, 
friend request. Oh, God. Uh, this is a story about a girl who uh, befriends a an unpopular girl on Facebook, but when that unpopular girl starts like wanting to be her friend in real life, she unfriends the girl. The girl mm. then kills herself but, but and turned- haunts Facebook. It's about a ghost that haunts Facebook. Facebook mm. and is doing all of these evil things to ruin your friend count. Oh no! And there's a ticker on screen. You can see how, she's how many fr- how many friends she, like uh, oh her God. life is draining away. The fewer friends she I've, has. I've seen this one. It's so bad. It's unbelievable. Like it's, it's way way entertaining, but it is unbelievably worth, bad. It's worth delving into for at least half an hour. But my God! And then finally, a slightly oddball, like a different, totally different venue. Mm. Uh, virtuosity from the maker of the Lawnmower Man. Uh, this is about a police training program and what they, in which they put the minds of every serial killer in history inside one robot Russell Crowe. Sid six point seven. Uh, who then breaks into the real world and starts a murder spree that only a cyborg Denzel Washington can stop. He's not fully... He, he just has a fake uh, limb. That's a cyborg? That's a, I guess so. Yeah. Hmm. So they have, a, they have a, a computer program with every computer... With every killer yeah. loaded inside of it into single personality. He wants to murder everybody. They and he's self-aware. Have, he's self-aware. He's artificially intelligent. They also happen to have a robot-creating machine right next to it in the same room. Just in case... How, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, we thought I, I don't we want, thought virtual reality and artificial intelligence were going to be very different in the '90s than yeah, they actually were. Yeah, yeah. So, um, not to sway the vote, but I also happen to own the novelization of Virtuosity. Oh my god! And if you pick it, is I'll it, read a little bit of the, the, the novelization. It, is it significantly different? Well, I haven't finished it. It's just, but it's stupid. I'll say that much. It's stupid. I'll say this right now. Uh, uh, I've seen all or part of all the movies that are on this list. Okay. They're all stupid. They're all really stupid. They are all, all of these movies. I will say this. All of these movies. Mm. Sometimes we put out movies and are just like, oh, I don't know if that's even going to be a fun conversation, but whatever. We'll put it on there. Mm. All of these are a fun conversation. <laughs> all of these are a hoot. All of these are going to be a weird episode. Mm. And seriously, you cannot go wrong. Just pick the one that sounds the most interesting to you uh, and we will put that uh, poll on Twitter uh, I guess Friday okay uh, and uh, it'll be great so thank you everybody for listening uh, we have a Patreon account and we want to thank everybody who subscribes on Patreon uh, patreon.com slash critic acclaim you get a ton of bonus content including uh, special episodes uh, there are podcast series in which Whitney I and a series mm-hmm. of special guests review every single episode of Star Trek ever Hmm. We have a podcast in which we review every single Best Picture nominee ever in chronological order. We have uh, commentary tracks. We're going to be doing one for I Know What You Did Last Summer in the next week or two. Uh, we have a lot. Yeah. And we and Whitney's in the middle of a new project, which I don't want to tease too much yet. Well, I just started. so Yeah, yeah Whitney might be doing something extra fun that I don't think anyone else is really doing right now. Uh, so hopefully that'll get off the ground. Um, Fing- fingers crossed, knocking wood. Yeah. So if I, my motivation stays high. I think it'll be fine. And uh, we just want to thank every single one of you for listening. Uh, if you can afford to help out on Patreon for a lot of different tiers, that's wonderful. If not, please subscribe on Twitter. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. Let us know that you'd like enjoy this particular show. Uh, tell a friend. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff would be extra great. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, cut. <laughs>